So this is a hopefully to be a boot camp tour de force of what you need to know for HIV AIDS, and we can always go into other topics um, as, as you like. Um, so I don't have any conflict of interest. Um, I was eight years at the Department of Health um, working at their USF Clinical Trials Center, um, also as their director of disease control, working with the wonderful Dr. Sambunwit, um, and uh, that was great. And now I just transitioned to the VA. So um, as we know, I'm now VA side, but I'm still very involved with national and uh, um, state efforts for HIV control. So December 1st is always World AIDS Day, and why are we really worried about HIV, right? HIV's been around a while. Why are we perseverating on this? Well, it's because we need this to end it and we need to know how social determinants of health impacts um, HIV infection and how this has actually been amplified by COVID-19 and why is that important? Well, HIV infection is impacted by monkeypox virus, by COVID-19, by everything else in the social milieu. I'd like to give you an update on HIV science, prevention, treatments, and vaccines. Um, I'd like to also talk with you how you can identify and refer new HIV cases, because um, when you're in clinic, sometimes it's a very controlled environment. You see folks are already suppressed on their ART, you, know, you have a good conversation, you make sure they're up to date, and then you say goodbye, and you see them in six months. Well, in the real world, sometimes you got to be that person who identifies HIV. Um, you got to be that person who refers them to care. So that's, I think, the challenge and the responsibility of ID docs is always keeping that in your differential and knowing your networks in terms of where to refer people and how best to refer that person for care. Um, so how do you overcome barriers and stigma, especially in the Southeast? We have a lot of stigma surrounding HIV. What is U equals U? We're going to talk about that. Updates on PrEP and NPEP, and then some updated provider resources. So this is the epidemiology, and I wanted to bring this home because this is really tied to the social term of health. Infectious disease is a specialty in its own, in own right. It's very determined with the environment, with, with people's interaction with other people. Um, that's why I love the profession. That's why I went into this specialty is because um, it's very rewarding, but also you can make a lot of wonderful changes and leverages in terms of um, getting people you know, back on track and preventing and curing disease, which is another wonderful thing about um, infectious disease. Can't cure HIV yet, but we're working on it. Um, so there are about 37 diagnoses in 2018. Now, 2022, we're up to about that number. Unfortunately, Florida is one of the top, both in new diagnoses and total prevalence. Um, you can see there, there are um, demographic disparities in HIV um, still, unfortunately, persisting. Um, that's changing a bit, but um, we're trying to get those levels, obviously, down for all groups. Uh, why is that important? Well, that affects messaging. That affects how we reach out to different communities. Um, the South is 51% uh, prevalence. Um, why is that? There are many concrete real reasons for that, um, but I think suffice to say um, we are practicing in that region, so we have to be very aware of testing for HIV, prevention for HIV if somebody comes to you with an exposure um, or even an STI, you need to have that conversation about HIV prevention through PrEP. So as infectious disease doctors, we're really on the cutting edge and, and really kind of on the ground in terms of that surveillance. Um, and so how does how are people getting HIV? So um, basically, it's, it's currently a male-to-male -male sexual contact. However, we see it in injection drug use, especially in the Northeast um, and in parts of um, the Midwest. Um, we also see heterosexual contact. Uh, really, I mean, anyone human is at risk for HIV. It's uh, even occupational exposure. So um, it, it really is a general population-based uh, um, virus, um, as is monkeypox. Is, is, it's quickly becoming that as well. So it's, um, it's very important to, to kind of keep that in mind um, as well. Um, and just to, to say, um, we have um, all types of folks in the health department space and the in the VA space, all types of groups, all types of socioeconomic groups. So really, um, anyone can be affected. Um, diagnosis among MSM, so men have sex with men by race, ethnicity. Now, why is this important? This is important because our African-American MSM are highest risk. Um, and it's important to reach out um, as a public health person um, for messaging and also for bilingual materials for our Latino community as well. Um, and we have made success. We've had some successes. We've, we've decreased those rates. We still have a way to go, um, but this is just something for the socioeconomic determinants of health. Um, so something else in your practice is infectious disease physicians. There's a lot of politics and flurries around it, but transgendered individuals, right, um, are really important to consider to include in your clinic to obviously make them feel welcome, but also to know that this is a risk group as well. So having those conversations the same as you would with any other patient that you see, but also um, not being afraid to ask a sexual health history, and we can always talk about that more in detail, but becoming comfortable as a physician with those conversations and, and having that safe space um, to open up for someone to open up and, and tell you maybe their risk factors and if they'd be interested in PrEP or HIV care or HIV testing.
Uh, PWID is people um, who inject drugs. Um, so there is, um, as you know from the COVID epidemic, there has been an opioid, unfortunately, resurgence of people um, using. That is because people couldn't access mental health care, um, a lot of isolation. Um, so that's also, unfortunately, a risk factor for HIV and interjection use drug population. And you'll probably hear about needle syringe exchange programs that various groups are working on as well to address that. Now, Florida is a wonderful place to live, but it is terrible for HIV, and there are many reasons for that. Uh, we unfortunately um, have been uh, towards the top um, for multiple years now. It's actually the, one of the main reasons why I'm down here is to work on the HIV uh, public health outreach uh, in Florida. Um, and you can see, um, like many of our uh, diseases, unfortunately, we have a lot of kind of epicenters um, and then um, spread to um, other areas, but um, still very high uh, prevalence um, in, in Florida specifically and along the southeast. Um, so just for those, uh, I, those, those you're, you're also wonderfully young, so I wanted to uh, just give you a little bit of history. Um, is, did you know what this is, actually? Oh, goodness. Didn't they end up like the, the like, uh, blankets they put out? They would do, like, squares and stuff like that, yeah. memorials to people. I was alive for this. <laughs> yes. So for, this is in the 80s. So this is. Does anybody else recognize? Thank you. That's very good. <laughs> um, anybody else? Okay. So, yes. Yeah, so, to take it really, um, to add the gravitas to this, each quilt, each square, so this says Tom down here, each square is an individual who died from HIV and AIDS actually at that time. Um, and why is that important? Well, we didn't have medicines back then, we didn't have the science to even produce the medicines really back then, we didn't have the genomics. And why is this important? Because the HIV epidemic really started um, in, well, we can talk about it, but basically we think HIV was around probably in the 40s, 50s, really started accelerating around the 80s, 90s. And at the time, we didn't have medications. At the time, there was such a stigma, similar to monkeypox today, it was considered, no, it's, you know, men SM, SM and, you know, it's, it's people who, you know, shouldn't be doing things they shouldn't do, and that's the stigma of it, right? But that's not true. People got it through transfusions. People got it through just having normal relationships about their lives, right? So um, what happened, because the stigma is patient and there's no treatment, a lot of people didn't get tested. A lot of people, unfortunately, passed away. Um, and so this really brought attention to the national sphere in a very, very powerful moving. And I've actually seen these quilts uh, hanging. They, they rotate them in and out of their collection at the, um, the Kennedy Center um, there. And um, it's very, very powerful. These, I mean, these are obviously sons and brothers and, you know, um, very, very uh, well-revered in their community. And um, anyway, the reason I'm bringing that up is because I think it's important to understand what an impact HIV and AIDS have had on our country, um, how it continues to wreak havoc, but also with our new epidemics, be it COVID or monkeypox, we have to be so vigilant because um, it's unfortunately sometimes the same story repeating itself in terms of, you know, not having testing, not having vaccines, not having treatments. So just in terms of knowing what's going on, not to, not to belabor the point, but I wanted to show you that's why this is so powerful. And these, they're called AIDS quilts or HIV quilts has actually been in other cities as well. So other cities started doing this as well. And these are um, on in archives and museums. So just to, the, the gravitas of, of HIV is, is very powerful. We've come a long way, but we have a long way to go. Okay, so social determinants of health. Why does that bother us? Well, if, if, someone, is, um, if someone is diagnosed with HIV, um, unfortunately, like many things, COVID, um, diabetes, heart problems, right? where someone is in their socioeconomic level, unfortunately, affects how they do, right? So basically, you're seeing here um, poverty lines, um, and then you're also seeing um, the diagnosis. So as unfortunately, the more somebody is before the below the federal poverty level in this red, the more likely they are to acquire HIV. That's true for tuberculosis in some senses, right? Um, people don't have access to care. People are at higher risk or around people who are higher risk who may not be engaged with the healthcare system. Um, and as, as good as our healthcare system is the United States, it has so many weaknesses because we don't have that, that really um, cohesive network that we can get people uh, to care. We have the wonderful public health departments, but there's a lot of people who may not be able to access that, who are um, not into care. So that's what I wanted to bring out um, is that even, so you have categories, which are you know, somewhat artificial, but you have categories, but then you also have uh, poverty and then um, access to resources, which also affect um, care. Now, 
Um, HIV acquisition. This is this comes up a lot in occupational exposure in, in patient conversations. Um, blood transfusion. Remember, we didn't screen the blood supply until what year? Do you remember? I want to say it was pretty mid to late 90s. I, yeah, 85, 85 around there. Yeah, 85, um, late 90s. It probably you know went through. But right, we were unfortunately um, spreading HIV through through blood transfusion, hepatitis C through blood transfusions, right? That's why we screen the baby boomer population, hepatitis B. So they did a study that actually looked at archived blood supplies of people who um, acquired HIV and they noticed they had been um, actually exposed to hepatitis B before. Um, so there's a lot of, um, exactly, very good. There's a lot of things that we've done. Uh, other things um, that remember that people rotated with me, the air gun vaccines in the, in the military, um, people would line up. It's called, a, it's an air gun vaccine. It was, um, Oh my gosh, it was done, it was run by air. It's called a pneumo, it's like a pneumatic vaccine. And basically when, when the blood would squirt back, the person on the front line, if they had FC, they would potentially give FC to everybody down the line. It's horrible. Um, it was done regularly for a while. We simply stopped, thankfully. Um, but the reason I mention that is because our veteran population has a very high risk of hepatitis C um, and same anybody going through that. Um, and also, unfortunately, we've seen that in vaccine campaigns, specifically in Egypt. We know that that actually happened as well. The needles were reused, um, not by the United States, but the needles were used. Um, so that was a problem as well. Um, so that's something to keep in mind when you ask about your, your medical history. Have you been in the army? Have you been traveling? Did you grow up abroad? Those are really important questions to ask. All right, so needle sharing injection drug use. Remember, it's a very efficient, unfortunately, way of spreading virus, right? So whether it be hep C, HIV, percutaneous needle stick, absolutely. So these are rate per 10,000 um, exposures. Now, conversations come up with patients about, not to get too graphic here, but just be, be aware there are many ways of spreading HIV. So that's always good to ask a, a good, good history. Um, but also um, in terms of um, your, your own work and your rotations, um, uh, just, you know, universal questions are fine, but um, I always give our patients a pep talk about, you know, no, no risk to household um, uh, contacts. And then also U equals U, undetectable is transmittable. So it's important to know the exposures, but it's also important to destigmatize HIV because once it's controlled, um, it should be absolutely fine and it's negligible exposure. Um, so, okay. So moving on. Sorry. Okay, so this is really exciting. So the CDC has really kind of pivoted in terms of its outreach. Um, it's become a lot more, um, I think, patient-centric. Um, I think it's become a lot more aware of the real risk factors for transmitted HIV. And so there's a really nice uh, risk reduction tool um, with HIV that you can uh, take a look as well. And you can refer your patients as well. I think it's really nice. Um, it's, it's very good information. I think it's packaged very well. So I'm going to skip over this. Um, this is HIV diagnosis by top states. Um, so unfortunately, Florida is, this was 2017. We've actually come up um, quite again. Um, but uh, Florida and Georgia, uh, in terms of actual states, um, have been high. We also have, I mean, a lot of general population. So, I mean, it's in terms of percentage, but also uh, per per population, we're also very high. Um, so this is just in 2017 with COVID things, the reporting wasn't as up to date, but this is the latest one that I, that I have. Um, you can see that um, we're uh, number 18 uh, in the country uh, right now. This is the prevalence of diagnosed HIV infection. Um, so we have um, a lot, a lot going on. The rate, that's why, that's why I put this on here, is because population obviously can change, but we're here uh, in terms of the, the rate here as well. Um, and a lot of our cities are uh, affected. Okay, so this is what I wanted to show you. The map of HIV prevalence is similar to the prevalence of, of diabetes, cardiovascular and COVID-19. COVID-19 has really complicated HIV care. Um, just, I, I know this is an HIV talk, but just know <laughs> it's, it's hard getting people into care. It's getting better now. Um, but just so you know, telehealth has really been able to get people living with HIV into care. So I won't, I won't um, go too much into that, but just to know. Okay, basic science and treatment updates. So treatment is prevention. So basically what to remember looking at these is before someone was diagnosed with HIV, we would wait, we would kind of see how they did. At that time, the antiretrovirals were very toxic. So we had to wait sometimes. Um, and we had to make sure someone would really wanted to take it, not go on and off of it. Now, thankfully, we're really test and treating. So we, we test them, then we treat them right away. And there was a wonderful landmark study, the HIV prevention treatment trial, HBTTN trial. One of those were showing that you, if you actually treat somebody, you can uh, prevent the um, infection rate. So 
Uh, let's jump in here. So those that rotate with me have seen this a little bit, but we're going to, um, this is from the um, NAID, NIH. Um, first, the, the virus will fuse to the host cell, okay? Like many viruses, right? COVID will, will fuse to the host cell. So a lot of this is similar, but what's important, this is your CD4 receptor. So the excellent talk by Dr. Canella, you saw the, all the, the, the T cells and B cells and everything. So these are your, this is your friendly T cell. Um, and with the T cells, there's CD4, there's CD10, there's a lot of receptors. This HIV virus is very smart. It will dock to the CD4 receptor. Um, and the GP120 uh, on the HIV virion will dock on there as well. And it's literally, unfortunately, like a, like a, like a spacecraft. I mean, it basically docks the proteins grab on. And what happens is the virion then is, is basically fusing to the membrane. So you have the fusion. I'm just going to go back. And then you can have what happens is the RNA, right? It's a reverse transcriptase um, inhibitor. So the RNA goes into your DNA, actually human DNA, unfortunately, integrates into the DNA. So it fuses, um, and then it basically, these are the, I'm not sure if you can see my mouth. Yeah, you can, great. Um, you can see the working end of the HIV virus. Um, you can actually, the reverse transcriptase, so basically the RNA is, is becoming, uh, into the DNA, it's integrating, right, into the human DNA. Why is this so important? Well, our early HIV drugs would um, have mimic analogs for this reverse transcriptase. And why is that important? Well, because it stopped the replication in its tracks, right? It's like you're putting the wrong Lego <laughs> in some <laughs> in a train, right? Um, and so it stopped the virus from replicating. And so all of our, most of our early HIV drugs here that's how they started. And AZT, remember, was a cancer drug, right? It was an anti-cancer drug that was kind of taken off the shelf and it had some um, activity. So that's that's why that's important. So that's why that class became very important of drugs. Now, integrase inhibitor, it stops integrase. Now, this was a later development, but this is so important because this is such an efficient um, step in terms of if you block it, it becomes very efficient in stopping replication. It also stops integrase inhibitor, integrase uh, from, from working. So this is very important as well. So your, your medications like Elvitegravir, Bictegravir, those are all integrase inhibitors and they stop the viral DNA. Um, this is the host DNA, all right? And so once it goes to the host DNA, it starts replicating and then it makes new viral DNA, okay? And why is that important? Well, because those medicines called the protease inhibitors, they will inhibit this prote protein budding, all right, so that's important too. They have their own side effect profile, but that's where they work on the, the process, right? So it's a whole process and all the drugs work on the specific process. And then there's a there's a mature uh, maturation of the virus. And this just shows you maturation inhibitors. We don't usually use those because it's obviously the late stage, right? And it's already integrating in the in the in the genome. So we try to really go upstream, if you will, and the non-nukes and the nukes are reverse transcripts inhibitors, integrates inhibitors, protease inhibitors. So that's any questions on that before I move on? It's um, like a nice way of thinking about the process. Um, this is a, it's a Fauci slide. It's, I love this slide. It is so old, but I love it because this is what we think of um, HIV, um, and unfortunately, the history, the natural history of HIV. So I'm going to start with primary infection and viral load. So in your practice, you will probably see a new HIV diagnosis. Uh, viral loads, we've seen, gosh, anywhere up to tens of thousands, sometimes even 800 or so. Uh, copies per milliliter though, right? And so primary infection, there's a very high viral load. That's when people have those fevers and chills sometimes, not always. Maybe have a rash. Um, it's hard if they also have COVID, which we've seen also. Um, and then they come down, right? Somewhat, somewhat depends on the person. And then there's kind of this control of the body, right? Trying to fight it off. But unfortunately, it's it's not sustainable. And the, that vi um, this uh, virus um, goes through, um, sorry, this is your CD4 count. Your CD4 count will actually go through a latency where you're not be able to detect it and then it'll drop, okay? Um, same with the virus. This is, of course, no virus. This is the high virus here, and then it will plateau as well, and then it will just take off, unfortunately, without any treatment. Um, why is this important? Well, a lot of our diagnoses happen in the clinical latency period where people are feeling fine. Remember, it's a lentivirus, so it's moving slowly. Um, and so that's why as clinicians, if, you know, something doesn't add up, if they have, you know, a condition and you're wondering why, um, then I would definitely suggest HIV testing. Um, why is this also important? We're seeing now um, diagnoses for whatever reason of the CD4 count, um, which is normally around 1,000 moving down, um, sorry, being at a uh, lower level at diagnosis. So we've seen new diagnoses now at lower and lower levels. Some of that has been somebody infected for a long time, but some of it, um, for whatever reason, 
um, can be actually just a lower set point. Um, it's called a nadir, the lowest that they've been at. If you see a patient with a nadir or a low point, you know, less than 20, it's going to be harder, right, for that bone marrow and, and their body to produce those T cells coming back. So you're probably going to be with opportunistic infection prophylaxis for a longer time period. Um, but again, if you see somebody early and you test them, then they're probably going to rebound a lot, lot more quickly and they'll have a better health outcome. So it's another reason why we like to test early. We get people on treatment um, and then their immune system um, will rebound. Have you heard of the START trial? That was a really important trial. Okay, so the START trial was uh, to address that very question, right? Does it, do you wait for people to drop their CD4 counts um, or do you start them right away? And the answer clearly was you start them right away. There used to be these very fancy guidelines. WHO would have them, US would have them, Europe would have them. Oh, if you're above you know, 600 or above 400 or above 200 or below those numbers, um, basically, but that now has gone away, thankfully. So you don't have to artificially look at CD4 count. You just start them on therapy, which makes a lot of sense. So testing for HIV in Florida. Um, so at, um, in the health department, they do offer free HIV. Uh, used to be free. Um, they've sometimes added some fees for STI testing. But in a, in a perfect world, uh, it, is, it is free. They have HIV testing outreach. Um, there's actually home kits um, that the Department of Health used to mail out as well. And it kind of waxes and wanes depending on their availability, but something to ask. Um, also, your patients can get these um, in CVS. They can also go to an HIV testing site in the Florida Department of Health area. And the VA, of course, we can always uh, rap. Uh, I wish I could rapid test. We're working on that, but we can also HIV test them as well. Um, there is stat testing for occupational um, exposure and also for NPAP for post-exposure prophylaxis for, for patients as well, as, as well, of course, in all settings. Um, so hopefully that helps. Um, Rapid testing is great. It can be, as you know, through finger stick. It can be oral. Uh, you can also do rapid testing for hepatitis C. I worked actually for, goodness, two years working on rapid HIV and hep C co-testing, which was really, really wonderful. Um, so that's, that's also um, possible. All right. So um, what to look for at the HIV infection? Um, what you're looking for um, when you're looking at somebody being newly diagnosed? Um, changing gears a little bit. So you're looking for this P24 antigen in the GP120. Um, our tests have gotten better and better over time. It used to be where you would really need to get that viral load, make sure they were they were, were not infected, and an antibody. The antibody now is very good. I would still get a viral load if you're really worried. Um, but you can see as, as many viruses, the plasma will increase first and then the antigen will follow. So, um, so this is another important slide just to kind of keep in your memory. Um, this is the GP120, and this is the P24 docking. Um, this is a nice marker. We don't do Western blots anymore. Do you all hear about Western blots? We used to do these mm -hmm. kind of nice Western blots, and it was the standard of care for a while. Thankfully, the science has evolved, um, so we have a lot more rapid diagnoses. But, uh, but in the day, it was, it was very important to establish diagnosis. Luckily, we're moving away from that. Um, and the fourth generation um, is really, really doing well in terms of... Um, in terms of testing. So testing and treat. So in your practice, and I would also encourage you in your inpatient rotations, coordinate with your attending, um, depending on you know, how you want to, to get care. Um, really test and treat is really important. Um, you know, even we call it a warm handoff or a red carpet, basically making sure that that individual uh, gets care for their next ID appointment. Um, when I worked with with Rapid and really in the field, um, we would actually have a mobile phone, the flip phones, and we would call, um, our, our folks would call the, the clinics and, and get them in directly. So that way they have an appointment already set up. So that's ideal to have, you know, social work team or something or call, you know, reach out and make those appointments. And we actually have disease intervention specialists who will come in to the hospital setting. It's gone off and on with COVID, but they will also make those connections. So um, data it definitely shows better long-term biological suppression and adherence is better immune constitution. And um, all Florida Department of Health um, will offer six-day chest and treat. Um, we have walk-ins, as you know, in the Hillsborough location. Um, same with VA. You know, if a veteran is is um, is um, diagnosed, get them right into care. We now have Monday through Friday um, clinics actually at the VA with walk-in for STI care uh, as well. We we like appointments, but they can they can come in during theirs too. Um, and then we have uh, yes, reducing community viral load is important, of course. But also, I mean, for the person's own immune system, it's 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 important. So, um, how 
I'm very familiar with this. So HIV certainly affects the CD4 count, but what does it also do, right? The immune system, right? So um, going back to the good Dr. Canella's uh, slides, you can see um, it actually establishes latency. So when you talk about someone living with HIV, they have latency in the CNS, uh, in the lymph node system. Um, you'll have, sometimes people have gastrointestinal um, symptoms as well. We saw some, I, I, I just saw a gentleman recently who had presented with GI symptoms. Um, uh, joints, rashes, um, different things for different people, right? So um, really important to keep that differential that HIV unfortunately affects the whole system and can establish latency there. Um, so eradication is very difficult right now. We're, we're working on, you know, fleshing it from the system and eradicating it um, kind of like we do in, in cancer studies. Um, but right now um, we're suppressing it with antivirals. So HIV even, certainly without ART, right, will devastate not only your T cells, but also B cells and also undermine uh, CNS and cause inflammation. But even with therapy, we know our individuals have higher rates of all types of cancers, right? Cervical cancer, uh, anal rectal cancer, um, certainly untreated HIV with lymphomas. Um, so we know that for sure. And unfortunately, and many of you probably have already seen this in rotations, a lot of our presentations to care sometimes are with an oncological malignancy. Um, and Atlanta, unfortunately, that was also very profound. They actually have dual specialties of oncology and, and HIV due to the acuity of those situations. Um, so absolutely um, good to test. So um, what is U equals U? So the, your, your antiretroviral is started. Um, you do want to check, even if you change into retroviral therapy, you want to check um, to make sure that there's tolerance and that the viral load is suppressed. Why is that? Number one, integrase inhibitors are really um, known for causing aberrations in LFTs and sometimes lactic acidosis. They, um, they, they interfere with metformin sometimes with our folks who are on. Um, also, some people can have aberrations with liver, liver functions. Um, sometimes they're symptomatic, sometimes they're not. Um, so just, just good to check. You also want to make sure they don't have an archive mutation. If, if you're changing an ART, um, sometimes they can have a mutation that you might have known, not known about, they might not have known about. Um, so that's important to make sure they're still suppressed. Um, but also when ART is initially started, you obviously want to check them, same, same idea, but they should be suppressed around four to eight weeks, especially if they're on an integrase inhibitor. If they're not, then there's something else going on. There might be another comorbidity uh, interfering. They might not have perfect adherence. You might want to have that conversation. Um, all right. So knowyourhivstatus.com. Um, this is really, a really, I think, a really nice website. Um, Florida Health really did, I think, a good job here. But you can um, look for resources, and you can also um, refer your patients there. Um, this also used to be able to um, request free uh, kits, so ordering kits, and that's that's gone off and on. It may not be available. Last time I checked, it was it was kind of on reorder, so you have to kind of see if they have samples. Um, but anyway, antiretroviral update. So um, one of the things, um, and I think that um, the end of last year, I went through all the ARTs, and I was going to go through a little bit of that today, but you'll probably hear a lot about tenofovir, right? TAF, tenofovir alafenamide versus TDF, which is tenofovir diproxyl fumarate. Um, and that debate goes on kind of in the prep world and also the ART world. Um, but certainly TAF is, is uh, recommended for less bone and renal involvement. We know that for sure. Um, however, TAF has also been associated with more metabolic um, aberrations, so diabetes, hyperlipidemia, um, and not indicated in prep with our cisgendered women. So you have to kind of balance that out. Um, because our integration inhibitors are so effective, we actually can use two drug regimens. Uh, regimens. Before, we used to do three, um, you know, three plus a booster. Um, those integrase inhibitors that I showed you on the previous slide are so effective in stopping the inhibition of, of the RNA that we can also just give dilutegravir uh, ropivirine or dilutegravir lamivudine, which is phenomenal, and now injectable, right? Uh, dilutegravir, uh, I'm sorry, uh, cabinuva, so that's cabotegravir ropivirine. So that's also very exciting. Um, any questions on that? Okay. And then our tenofovir is going generic. The TDF is going generic. And 3TC is all generic. Why is that important? Well, we get more prep uh, folks, people on prep, which is really exciting. Um, we get more prevention, um, which is, I think, really, really the key. Um, and also it's available to more people. Um, why did I put this phosphatasmir? Well, this is really exciting. There's new work uh, in um, eslashivir, phosphatemperasvir. Asesivir is an injectable that's going to last up to almost six months. Phosphatemisvir is also is a new a CD4 cell attachment inhibitor, which is great. It binds the GP120, so hopefully it doesn't even have to you know, enter the cell. 
And so we're working as as time goes on for injectable medications and also um, medications that last longer. That can be used for, for pre-exposure prophylaxis or for treatment. So these are some of the um, older medicines you might see. Um, at the time, tribal was called the quad drug. It was the, the best thing since sliced bread. It was really good for treatment. It was fantastic. We were all so excited when it came out uh, because for adherence and uh, for um, basically tolerability, it was really excellent. Thankfully, that has also evolved. Um, and our go-to is kind of the TAF um, FTC Victegravir. Uh, we still use a lot of the TAF FTC of Lentegravir Cobacisset. That Cobacisset, though, is really... Uh, difficult. Pharmacokinetically, um, it interferes with a lot of other medications. So that's why we like to avoid cobacisset if possible. Um, you'll see these on the boards, though. So there's um, kind of the older version, Complear, which is t uh, TAF, uh, sorry, TDF-FTC mopivirine, and then um, the TAF version, same here. And then you're not going to see much of the efavirenz anymore in the TB world. It's well studied. Um, but uh, in the HIV world, we try to avoid it uh, for CNS. Elevation, anybody else know Favarin's effects? It elevates the CNS. So it will give people vivid dreams. Um, it also make somebody who is maybe hypomanic, more manic. So you have to really be careful about that. Um, okay. All right. Then these are the long-acting injectable antiretrovirals. Um, why is this exciting? This is super exciting because it'll help adherence. It'll help transmission. It'll help prevention. And then hopefully we can get a vaccine and, and, and really end HIV. Um, but this is really exciting. Um, and the Florida, uh, probably uh, you working in the health department, the AIDS, the ADAP program, they do a great job. They give um, drugs to folks who need it. Um, and what this is, is, is they're piloting this as well. It's now available in the VA. So um, that both the uh, cabotegravirvopivirine called Cabanuva, um, and also we're working, uh, rolling out shortly, it's been approved in VA of injectable cabotegravir for PrEP, and that's every two months, which is really exciting. All right, HIV vaccines. So we've been working on it. I wish I, I, I were direct, more directly working on it all. No, I'm just kind of following the literature, but there's really exciting things happening. Uh, broadly neutralizing antibodies called BNABs, you might have heard, um, which is basically preventing um, the, the virus from, from attaching and being effective. Um, there was a really exciting RV144 vaccine trial actually done by the Department of Defense, and um, there was one done in Thailand as well. Um, it's been it's been kind of going along, but it's a very tricky virus. But there's also an HIV vaccine trial network, so we're um, all of us are you know trying to to see uh, how we can help in that. That's very exciting, um, and there's a public-private partnership as well. So um, there's, there's a lot of um, good work going on. Obviously, with COVID, the attention, you know, has been to COVID, but we're trying to work on using those technologies um, to extrapolate for HIV vaccine work. Okay. How to identify and refer to HIV cases. Um, so acute HIV syndrome, right? Rash, puritis, fever. I would say maybe half, half to maybe less of folks will actually tell you that story, maybe even less. Um, it's same with syphilis. Sometimes people come to you and they say, I've you know, never had a rash, never had a lesion. And it's true. Um, so they may have seen it or, you know, may have not happened. Um, we always talk about risk behavior reduction. And this is kind of the soft skills here, but it's important. Um, in unusual or persistent skin lesions, I have seen a lot of kaposis, especially in the health department space, um, new diagnoses. Um, and also, um, we now refer more for oncology care. It used to be, and also for your boards, it's really starting ART, but we do um, give a um, Dr. Rubison, but I won't say commit to chemotherapy, but we do give um, chemotherapy for Kaposi's. Um, so those are basically those. Um, this is the HIV hotline. Um, helpful for, for patients as well. Obviously, when you're in the health department or the VA, you have go-to folks uh, for the Health Department's Disease and, and Interventional Service, and also your attending will be able to link you with those folks. Um, and also in the VA space, um, myself and Carrie Wilsinski, the ID APRN, but also we have other support networks as well. Okay, so barriers. So I'm going to kind of speed through this because I know they're a little bit more soft skills and I want to kind of go more to the, the science of it, but um, barriers to what are we doing on time? Okay. Uh, barriers to HIV testing and care. So just know that there are a lot of barriers. So that's why, at least in you know, the clinic, if someone comes late, I always try to get them in 
Um, it's very hard for people to get care um, and and trying to to um, organize that. And people ask me, you know, for for things, I, I try to help them as much as you know, give them the resources and refer them obviously as possible. And there's a nice network that you can you can work with. Um, we have seen uh, stigmatization and ostracism by family, friends, and partners. There was a case in the health department where um, a woman's child was was basically the family decided that they didn't want her to take care of the child. I mean, it's really sad things. So without you know violating HIPAA, there's a general stigma of of um, people being ostracized by family and friends. So it's it's very, um, very real. So um, we're very careful about, um, you know, making sure we can write a letter if they really want better with results or do we really leave a message, um, you know, making sure that you've confirmed that that person wants you to leave a message and or that that, that person's phone is really important as well. Um, so let's see here. That's good. Um, I think that's good. Yes, just in terms about stigma, um, not to get too into politics, but just to know that because um, it is relevant at the Florida Department of Health, there's HIV uh, felony laws in many of the southern states. And so you'll get questions from your patients about, you know, how do I reveal my status to my partner and, and what does that mean? Um, and so basically, I mean, it's always good to be open, right? I, I really don't talk about, you know, felony laws or, you know, you're going to break the law, if you, you know. No, it's, it's really about um, trust issues and, and relationship issues. But um, it, unfortunately, there, there are still laws on the book. Technically, is it enforced? No, um, not that much at all. Um, but it's important to maybe to be able to answer that question or to refer them to someone who has more information. It might come up. Um, so that's it. Stigma, basically. Um, one of the things I ask about adherence is if their family knows their status. Chances are if their family does not know their status or if they're traveling, if they're housing insecure, uh, it might be difficult for them um, to continue with their adherence, right? If they're trying to hide their medicine or if they're trying to, to go from shelter to shelter. So that's important, I think, to ask. Some patients may not, not tell you that right away. Um, and so that's important uh, when you're doing your social history um, in clinic, if they're new to clinic or if they're following up or if they've lost been lost to care, there's probably a good reason why they're not coming. As I always say, sometimes your most important note is your no-show note <laughs> because that person probably needs your care. Um, so just, you know, as you can imagine, just try to see what's going on with them in the HIV world. Um, undetectable is untransmittable. Um, so this is really exciting. How many people have heard of undetectable is untransmittable? Okay. Anybody want to tell me what their interpretation is? Volunteers. Have um, a viral and they can't transmit. There you go. Exactly. So U equals U eliminates stigma. Exactly. And this is this is really groundbreaking. Actually, this is really exciting because before people really did have a lot of stigma. Um, back when we counsel people wanting to conceive children, um, we would have to you know really counsel them and you know figure out how to not have a you know not transmit HIV and weren't sure how that would work. And, and thankfully, these trials have really shown that. People can really live, you know, normal um, lives in terms of reproduction and, and, and relationships. So that's really wonderful. Um, as long as they're undetectable for about six months, then they're they're untransmittable, which is really, I think, game changing for a lot of our, our patients and and certainly for the scope of the public health impact. So that's very exciting. So this is just shows you the six months and there's effectively no risk, which is really exciting. And this is what I tell my patients when they're newly diagnosed or or even. Um, you know, if they're asking about HIV, um, I, I really try to keep it optimistic because a lot of your patients have probably heard a lot of negative messaging and 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 not 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 and probably have a lot of fear and and, and problems um, with their diagnosis. So it's nice to kind of maintain optimism and to to give them a, a appropriately optimistic message. I think. Um, so this is a paradigm shift. Um, and what else? Yes. So we don't need to need, we used to have to conserve spur washing or in vitro and it used to be a big deal, but now thankfully we don't need to worry. Um, some, a woman, um, living or cisgendered, um, women or a, um, I should say biological, uh, woman, uh, living with HIV will still have to undergo the right screening of the That's a kind of a whole other lecture, but, um, but certainly um, in terms of the conceiving part um, should be uh, in good stead. All right, updates on PrEP and NPAP. So I guess take a stretch. Stretch, deep breath. So I wanted to mention PrEP and NPAP because it comes up in the dialogue. And I think it's a, I think we focus sometimes so much on HIV that sometimes I'd like to focus also on preventing HIV uh, as well. Because um, I think we get, pretty good at, at giving antiretrovirals and managing them by our you know, first year of fellowship. And I want to make sure that we keep you active and looking for HIV prevention opportunities. So um, this is a really, this is a taco bus. Uh, this is done by the Florida Department of Health. They did a really nice um, 
campaign. I think they did a really nice media campaign around PrEP. Um, and they had it um, in Haitian Creole. They had it in Spanish. Um, um, and they also had it in, of course, English, which is great. And why is this important? Well, it's reaching all of our groups that we talked about. Um, and so that's why that's important. Um, and so this is also some of the bus wraps that they've done, um, which I thought was kind of cool and hip. Um, and then also, um, I think their messaging is, is I think, I think it's good. I mean, I think they, they vetted it with the community and, um, I think it was really right on target in terms of, um, getting, getting the message across. Um, so how effective is PrEP? Um, well, it improves with adherence. So if someone is taking their PrEP medicine, their TDFFTC, their TFFTC, or getting their cav cavitagram injection, they're going to be almost, gosh, 99% effective. Here, I can look at this person. Um, did I let them in? Do he? Yeah. I, okay, I just kind of moved it around. Okay, um, good. Uh, so we have uh, adherence. Why is that important? Well, there's the. Do you, do you remember the new CDC guidelines for PrEP when you monitor? There's this new guideline where you check the HIV viral load in uh, in addition to the HIV antibody antigen. And why that came about is what we think. And speaking to the CDC, actually, we were very fortunate we got to speak with them. Um, they were worried about um, breakthrough virus. And what we noticed is that in spaces where there's excellent clinical navigation, excellent adherence, the breakthrough is very, very, very low on the oral regimen. So that's why in your practice, um, if you're worried about adherence, certainly go ahead and check that HIV viral for breakthrough. But um, generally speaking, we've had really good adherence profiles um, on the oral regimen. And, and the VA is just one example. They have um, very good um, outreach, I think, but also remember the medicines are all within the VA, so it's a little bit um, easier to track. Uh, they've noticed that they have very, very good adherence and, and very, very few, few breakthroughs, um, and then usually that's adherence related. It's not drug um, failure. So that said, the more adherent, the more effective, and that's what I tell my patients too, and I, I have them take it every day. Um, you've probably heard of the um, the 211 prep, which it's helpful, but it's it's not um, the best in terms of um, guaranteeing um, HIV prevention. PrEP 101, so essentially um, you can do your TDF daily or your TAF daily. Um, we've already talked about renal bones. You have to have good kidney function with TDF. Um, Discovy is very, very good as well. Um, you want to worry about weight gain. Um, not yet for cisgender females, still not so, and then injectable. So you definitely want to take HIV at initiation and at two months for your injectable cabotegravir. And it is a good practice if you are worried about acute HIV infection when you initiate PrEP. Um, we didn't used to do that a lot, but if you're really concerned, it makes sense um, to get a good baseline. Otherwise, right, you're going to give them resistance if you just give them um, a two-drug regimen such as this. Okay. Um, I'm not going to go too much about this, but um, Florida Department of Health has a very, very nice PrEP plan of action toolkit. Um, and the CDC also does. And a lot of these have been updated, but I just wanted to show you that um, if you have questions, these are very, very great, wonderful go-to resources. Um, this is also um, just segueing now the PEP, so post-exposure prophylaxis. So there's now an order menu um, at the VA. So if you get you know, a, a call, obviously we run it through your attending, but there's an order set through the emergency room and also through infectious order set. Um, to actually um, give out the, the medication all at once in the ED setting um, and to um, start within that 72 hours. Um, that's literally been a lifesaver. Uh, we've um, had really good success with that so far, um, and it eliminates a lot of that anxiety because a lot of this um, is your health resources, right? It's how you mobilize your meds and your, your staff and and getting the, the, the medication to the patient and convincing the patient it's important. So if you'll notice in your practice, if you automate the parts that can be automated, right? So if you can automate the labs, if you can automate the medicine being available, um, if you can automate the follow-up labs, then you can concentrate on the patient part, right? And you can concentrate on the follow-up part. So that's pretty good guidelines, I think, for pretty much anything infectious disease with this, including tuberculosis. Um, once you get those mechanics down, then you can focus on the other kind of trickier, softer skills, but um, but important nonetheless. Um, and PEP, so it's technically a 28-day course of, uh, oh, sorry. About the PrEP, yes. the last slide. Yes. You said that it's not approved for cisgender. The, yeah, so the TAF, the TAF. So, sorry, I might have garbled that with my mask. Yes, yeah, so basically you have the TDF FTC, the Tenofovir, right, Truvada, and then the TAF FTC, the Zoscovy. 
Um, the TAF for cisgendered females, my understanding is it still has not been approved for cisgendered females. The reason it's the blood um, level of that through the vaginal mucosa specifically. Um, TDF, remember, so TAF is intracellular, right? So that's how it prevents um, HIV, but also more so, that's why it's gentler and kinder on your kidneys and bones because it's intracellular, right? Um, TDF is ex more extracellular, right? So the reason why it's a little bit harder on your bones and kidneys, but it's recommended for people who are using drugs because you have to stop it at the mucosal source. And it's also better for your system to window. Yes. So we can still use the TDF. Oh, definitely. Okay. Oh, yes. I'm so sorry. Sorry. Yes. 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 Yes, team. Yes, absolutely. You okay. definitely want to use TDF FTC for your cisgendered women and also your pregnant or wanting to conceive cisgendered women. Um, absolutely critical. No, thank you for that clarification point. For sure. For sure. Um, and to that point, I believe Capotegravir is now for any person, um, but also, but I would be cautioned with intravenous drug use and still caution with um, cisgendered females. Just we don't have that data yet, but um, but yes, that's right. That's right. Okay, good. Any other questions? That was a very good question. Any other question? And that was actually, yeah, go ahead. It's about the injectable form. Yes. So who is a candidate for it? Yes, good question. For injectable cabotegravir, yes. So it's really someone who is, so in terms of the science of it, um, obviously you want to make sure they don't have any HIV infections. You want to take a HIV viral load. The good news is, well, you also want to screen them, obviously, for, for hepatitis B, right? You don't want to you know, treat them and, and have them partially um, covered with antiviral with hep B. But technically speaking, really anyone would be a candidate. I think if there's a renal... Um, I think there's, I have to check it, but I think there's a renal um, component to it, but it is very good. My understanding is all comers right now. Um, and I'd have to look at the latest, but I think it's really anyone would be um, available. Now they do have to uh, make sure they come in for the, for the, um, the drug. I know it sounds obvious and clear to everybody, but um, you'd be surprised. There is some, there is some tale of pharmacokinetics with that. And so people would be um, at risk for infection if they didn't, obviously. Um, but I think you have to have an adherent person. You have to make sure they come in for labs. Um, and I believe at this point, it's all comers in terms of, of genders um, that I can see. Um, so it's very, very exciting. Um, I will say cabotegravir, though, has a little bit higher risk of breakthrough infection um, just because it is a single agent, right? Um, and if they are exposed technically to someone with a cabotegravir mutation, right, there's a theoretical problem that they could have a breakthrough. But um, that's really in theory right now. It's an excellent question. And I, I'll double check to see if there's any updates on, on that. But my understanding, it's, it's all comers at this point. And I don't, I don't know if there's any specific guidelines in pregnancy, though. So I think your, your, your go-to would still be TDFFTC. But, um, but I, will, I will definitely look it up and get back to you all. I've been so focused on trying to get it approved. <laughs> That I need to love update myself in terms of exactly who can get it. We we treat a lot of obviously cisgendered men and in, in, uh, in our VA space, but yes, I, I think for our pregnant ladies, we definitely TDF is the way to go, and FTC. Um, anybody else? Okay, great, excellent questions. Um, oh yes, okay. So this is important. Um, so when you're seeing somebody from NPEP, whether it be I'm trying to think when you would probably the health department perhaps. Um, or maybe somebody you run into for clinic. Sometimes they follow up in the VA clinic. Um, it's technically 28 days of your, your it, it is actually a TDF-FTC. Why is that? Because you want the extracellular protection, right? So we don't, we don't do NPEP with TAF, right? We do NPEP with TDF. Um, Raltegravir, why? It's a little bit more studied. Can you give them dilutegravir? Sure. Um, can you give them Victarvi? Not really, because <laughs> it has the TAF, right? So you don't want to get too fancy. So it's really your TDF-FTC um, and your Raltegravir. Um, you can also give them daltegravir, which has worked well. Um, you definitely want to get your baseline, as you can imagine. I know most of you know this, but antibody, viral load. And you do want to check your hepatitis A, B, and C panel for sure. Um, remember, your, your TDF will protect you against hepatitis B, but it's nice to get that core baseline. Um, in the VA, we actually give 30 pills just because of the way that it works out. But, um, but you get the point there. Um, and then, yeah, and then you just say, follow the same regimen and protocol for um, you know, occupational exposure if you're following uh, patient for that as well, which we do. And um, yes, and then you just follow up your HIV antibody antigen. Um, and, you know, it's really, it's really working with the patient too. So if they, you know, want to be followed up at a month or two months, I'm, you know, that's absolutely fine with me. If they, if they really are worried about hep C transmission, you know, I check them earlier and there are specific guidelines to that. But guidelines are guidelines. So you have to just make sure that you're, you know, in communication with your patient or uh, your team is. All right. 
so we'll do this and then we'll take a stretch break. How about this? Um, these are some extra uh, resources for you. Um, oh, so exciting. Let me just put a blurb here. So we are super excited at the VA uh, to offer this national HIV curriculum. Okay, so I know y'all are taking your boards, so we will let you be in peace until I take your boards. But I would love, I would love, love, love for you to look at this. Why? Well, number one, you get, well, you get a certificate. It looks good in your resume. But also, it's really good because uh, for the real reason, we want you to really understand the basics of HIV because lectures like these are, you know, okay, but I really want you to get kind of a nice foundation in a um, sequential manner. And I think this is, um, this actually has been vetted by the CDC, um, very, very excellent educators, and it'll give you the step-by-step -step so that your brain can, you know, process in terms of, you know, the step approach, which I've done here in abbreviated form, but I think it's important that you look through um, this perspective. And if that's okay, I added, all of you probably should have gotten an email um, from me. Um, basically, you and Dr. Katzman is on, on that as well. She can, she can see your progress as well. Um, and no pressure. This is really, this is over two years. So we just want you to, um, you know, kind of learn and, and work through it at your own pace. We're going to have Dr. Morpardo um, work with y'all a little more closely um, in a collaborative way uh, and go over, you know, some of the high points. So um, to help help you understand some material, a lot of it is straightforward, but a lot of it's really kind of cool to talk about and to understand because it has implications for other viruses, right? It has implications for COVID and, and monkeypox virus. So um, anyway, any questions on that? But we would, we're so excited to be able to offer that this year. There's also a Hep C national curriculum. There's an STI national curriculum. Um, they're really great resources, even if you just click through them. Um, and on those sites, they have the medicines, actually. They have the screening tools. It's really a one-stop shop for HIV. It's really fantastic. These are um, educational training sessions that they have. Um, and this is really nice. So I've called this a couple of times with kind of difficult um, kind of unusual cases. Um, you can always obviously run them through your attending, but uh, if you're in practice and you know you're kind of the the you know you don't have that that support as readily, you can certainly call this as well. And they, it's like a kind of a warm line that they have that you can ask um, really great questions. And this is it from um, oh yes, there's a prep locator. So we get this question a lot from our patients. You know, I'm going to Missouri. You know, how do I follow up my prep there? Uh, you can look that up. I've done that in both the health department and VA spaces. Um, the VA is a little bit easier because you know where the VA is, but the health department space you can look at other health departments, other Ryan White clinics. It's really great. Um, and this is nice. This is also very nice. So this is all great, great things. And so there are many ways to prevent HIV. So prevention, testing, um, treatment. Uh, barrier protection, et cetera, and fast-track cities. So Tampa is uh, continuing to work on the fast-track cities as part of the formal CDC and the HIV epidemic. So um, your health departments are doing great work in terms of getting a good consensus together. And um, and Dr. Jackie Sherbuck is heading this up with Dr. Sempunwit. Um, and I think Dr. Aranki is probably involved as well to get um, Tampa kind of more visible in terms of um, working on HIV control and making that link from hospitals to health departments. 